name we pray. Jesus, amen. Amen. You stay in here? Oh, okay. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here today. And that was a, that was a, I don't know, for myself anyway, personally, that was a powerful worship service. I was blessed by that. So thank you, all you guys are involved in that. That was wonderful. Um, yes. Does anybody do any uh, gardening here? Yeah? No, well, so like, so we moved down here from Indiana and, you know, in Indiana, you just look at the dirt and stuff grows. I mean, it's one of those things. And down here, it's been a lot more challenging. It's not been something we've been able to pursue, but I grew up in Michigan and in Michigan, man, the, the soil is like black and rich and you just grow anything all the time. And so I grew up seeing gardens, like my mom would garden. She'd have these big patches all around the yard where she'd till up the the ground and and she'd get me out there sometimes to help uh, planting the seeds you know so we'd walk through the aisles i can still remember walking through those tilled rows and on the ends of each row i don't know if this is a thing people still do but at the end of each row she'd have a stick there with the seed packet uh, and the picture on the seed packet attached to it as a kid who watched too many cartoons i just assumed that was a menu for the animals the bugs bunny and stuff (laughs) But apparently, I think the idea behind it was so that she could remember what it was that she had planted uh, in there. But I can remember, as a kid, just being fascinated by that process. Like, I'd, I'd walk with her and I'd be planting these little seeds down there and be looking at that packet. And you get to the end of the row and you're looking at the packet of what it's going to look like. And it was so different from what I had just put in the ground. I mean, and, and then when it would grow, you know, just this amazing stuff that was just overflowing all over the place. Again, like I said, this was Michigan. This wasn't sandy soil. So, it, it, you know, it would just grow huge gardens. And I was always intrigued uh, by that. I found that fascinating, the, the, this process where you plant one thing and something else just uh, grows out of it. We're going to talk about planting and growing today, not in a horticultural sense, but more in a cosmic sense. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to follow along, if you've got a Bible or your Bible app open, if you go to Luke chapter 23, please. We're going to finish up that chapter today. Uh, Again, we get near the end of Luke, and these chapters get really long. Today, we're going to read uh, 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 about the the connecting events between Jesus' crucifixion and and what comes after that. Last week, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus We considered how Jesus' experience on the cross was actually Jesus' victory, as the rest of the New Testament unfolds for us. It was the place of Jesus' enthronement as king, as incredible as that sounds. Jesus took the consequence of our sin to himself. He reconciled us back to God, our creator, through his sacrificial death. And, And the establishment of his kingdom begins there. And remember, a kingdom, we talk about the establishment of his kingdom. We're not talking about a geographical space when we talk about the kingdom. We're talking about a, a people who have submitted and are in, in, in submission to this king. That's what a kingdom is. It's the people involved. So the cross, as we said last week, was this place where Jesus inaugurates this amazing kingdom of God that begins to advance through the earth. And like we said last week, the, the cross is central to the Christian faith, but not just the cross itself. And we do have to remember that. If it, if it weren't for the events that happened after the cross, the cross would have been a great example to follow. It would have been something beautiful to look at and ponder and consider and, and see how we might emulate that somewhat in our lives. 
Uh, but that's about it. I mean, if, if Jesus' execution was the end of the story, then he would have been a martyr, like many of the prophets before him, but nothing more. I mean, his ministry would have ended, and that would have been the end of it. It would have been, we could have looked at him and thought, well, what a nice man. What a, what a lovely thing that he did, and we can learn a few things from him as we go. And, and that would have been the end of it. But because of what happens after the crucifixion, well, this story takes on a whole new life, literally. <laughs> and I hate spoiling it for you, but, you know, it's one of these things. His death doesn't take uh, as, we, as we go along. It, it, Jesus doesn't actually stay uh, dead. That's the news. That's the big game changer in this. That's the news that we use to decode the rest of what Jesus said and did in his ministry up to his death. But before we get to that glorious event, a wonderful thing, something, something that, you know, we probably don't prioritize enough in our thinking when it comes to our Christianity, we've got one more step to take here. Jesus died on the cross, and today we're going to read about his uh, burial. And it would be easy to assume that this is just another connecting detail for the narrative, you know, something that just gets us to, from the cross to the next event. But I believe it's actually more than that. I think this burial that we're going to read about actually reveals some things to us. In fact, over in John's gospel, uh, Jesus made a statement that just comes into sharp focus when we get to this event here, when we get to Jesus's uh, burial uh, in our text today. In John chapter 12, Jesus made this statement. When he came into Jerusalem, he made this statement. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of lives. Well, that's a really odd thing for Jesus to say. I mean, when you think about him coming into Jerusalem and everybody's expectations for Messiah, and Jesus makes this odd, you know, agricultural statement here, doesn't get a whole lot of traction until we get to his burial. And we recognize he wasn't just a corpse being laid in the ground. This was the planting of God's glorious new world. His burial was the seed that he referenced. He was planted dead, and then he bursts forth into new life that's multiplied over and over. The account of Jesus' burial actually gives us clues as to what this new life is like and, and what this new world will be like, this new garden that will grow uh, because of this? What kind of a harvest is it that God expects to come from the sacrifice of his son? So that's what we're going to be looking at today, uh, what we might expect to grow from the planted seed of Jesus's burial. So if you're there in Luke 23, we're going to pick up where we left off. Just to remind you where we are, Jesus was on the cross. Darkness fell over the earth. The temple curtain was torn in two. Jesus cried out for the Father to receive his spirit, and he stopped breathing. And remember, everyone went home in sadness. Uh, his followers stood by at a distance watching all of this unfold. So now we pick up with verse 50. Now, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish high council, but he had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation. 
as the Sabbath was about to begin. All right. Luke is pretty short on his details in this account. You can actually read more expanded versions of this over in Mark. But, but you still get the sense of urgency uh, in, in, in the timing of this as Luke records it here. It's late Friday afternoon and all work has to stop uh, before sundown on the Sabbath, on the eve of the Sabbath. Now, under normal circumstances, understanding how the Roman Empire worked, under normal circumstances, a crucified person would have hung on the cross for days before they died. And then after death, they would have hung there for as long as Rome deemed it necessary to drive home their message. Because remember, the cross is their ad campaign. This is, this is how things work in the Roman Empire. If you cross us in some way, well, we have a cross for you. So, so this was, you know, their warning to others. Normally, they would just leave the body there. Most victims would then be removed. And if nobody claimed the body, and here's the thing. It's a very tricky thing to claim the body of someone who is executed by the empire for sedition. Uh, you know, it's sort of like the mouse going up to the cat saying, do you mind if I take this cheese? Oh, would you like to? It's, it's, it's one of those kinds of things. Because one of the reasons we, I believe that we have so few archaeological evidences of crucifixion, we've only found two sets of bones in all of these years. Of all the people that the Roman Empire supposedly crucified, we've only found two sets of bones, largely, I believe, because people weren't claiming those bodies. People weren't taking them. If the body wasn't claimed, it would hang there until it rotted, or it would be removed from the cross and just dropped on the ground, left there to rot and rot away, and no one would claim it. Or it'd be taken down and thrown into a communal grave. Most likely, that's what was happening in Israel uh, at that time. Now, Rome did make um, concessions to the Jewish people about this, especially at this time. In the Law of Moses, there's this fascinating little passage. Deuteronomy 21, it says, if someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day. Yeah. The first question is, what is that doing in the law of Moses? And the second answer is, I have no idea. That's a weird thing for it to be there. But how amazing is it that it's there? Like, what a strange thing to be included in this body of laws to the Jewish people, but it certainly comes into play in this situation here. So to see to it that God's command is honored, a new character emerges in our narrative. I, I hope if you've noticed that Luke is just rapid fire, throwing characters in right at the end of his gospel here. This is someone we haven't heard of until this moment in the text. Joseph of Arimathea. He's someone that Luke has to fill in the details for us uh, because we've never heard of him. Luke says he was a good man and a righteous member of the Sanhedrin. So that being true, that means he was likely a man who was socially connected. He would have been held in high esteem by, by the people in society. who More than likely would have been wealthy. It's rare that you weren't going to find a wealthy person in the, in the ruling order there. But we're told explicitly that he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come, which meant that he was, if not an outright supporter, at least sympathetic to the ministry of Jesus because Jesus' ministry and teaching was all about the kingdom of God. So Luke also tells us that Joseph had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision to condemn Jesus to death. So it's possible, if you were here and remember how that all went down, there were two different trials that Luke seems to indicate to us. There was one that happened overnight where they, they came to their conclusion about what they were going to do. Then they called the entire Sanhedrin together in the morning and and basically presented that decision. So it's very possible that um, 
Joseph wasn't there in the overnight trial and showed up in the morning, or if he was there, he might have been one of those who was dissenting from that vote. John's gospel describes Joseph as a secret disciple of Jesus, secret because he feared the other religious leaders is the way John qualifies it. So this secret follower of Jesus now comes out of the shadows and he claims the body of Jesus. And that leaves so many unanswered questions in my mind. Why does he expose his loyalties now when it's too late uh, to do anything about it? Did he, did he have a sense of guilt over what happened? Did he feel responsible for, for what happened? Why does he take care of Jesus as though he's a member of his own family at this point in the story? Those details just aren't provided for us in any of the gospel accounts. But what Joseph does is pretty remarkable. Because like I said, time's running out here. They've got only a few hours left to get all the preparations ready for, for Sabbath. So everything had to be attended to quickly. Joseph goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body, which, think about this. We've got to really, really put our heads around this. He's going to ask for the body of someone who was executed for insurrection. That's taking a risk. I mentioned that earlier already. That's taking a real risk for him to associate with him even in death, would automatically associate Joseph with the crimes that Rome accused Jesus of. I can't imagine that Pilate was really stoked to see a member of the Sanhedrin showing up again at his place to talk about this Jesus uh, some more. But this is risky. But not just that. It's not just risking Pilate's anger that Joseph does here, but He was also a respected member of the highest ruling council in Israel who had just condemned Jesus as a blasphemer and and orchestrated his execution. So, I mean, he's taking a risk of having the Sanhedrin kick him out of his position, even excommunicate him from the larger community. So think about what's going on here for this guy, Joseph. Socially, religiously, civilly, Joseph faces retribution for taking charge of Jesus's body that that late afternoon. This one act puts he and his whole family in jeopardy. And I think there's something to this. Like I said, Luke is quick with his details. Mark fleshes it out just a little bit more. But as I see it, I see this as a projection of what we can expect to grow from Christ's death, what we can expect to see in this time between ages that we're living in. And I believe we see here that this new life from Christ is going to run counter to this broken world's systems. Joseph had to go against the status quo in this. And while we may look at Joseph's actions as just being a guy who's doing the basic decent thing to do, we have to feel the weight of of what he's doing in the cultural and religious and political context of the time that he did it. It's easy for us to look at that from a historic vantage point with nothing at risk and just assume it meant nothing. It meant everything to Joseph to do this. And I believe Luke wants us to feel this because the community that he's likely writing this gospel to, he's writing it to Theophilus, but others are reading that within the context. And so many of the early churches faced persecution from the governments and the kingdoms that were around them. And it was a reminder uh, that, that, you know, this is the way things go. This has been the story since the, first, the, since the church first came on the scene. 
There's been a resistance to God's values moving into this world. God's kingdom, remember, is an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't function like the kingdoms of this world, which makes it an automatic threat to those who like the way things are working in this world. Thank you very much. When, when we went through the book of Revelation, that was the main takeaway for me from that, that the beast and the false prophet, in other words, the governmental and religious systems of this world will always oppose the lamb. That's just the way it's, it's going to be. And I think it's a reminder to us and one that I think that as American citizens, we need to revisit now and anon that we shouldn't be surprised or thrown when the culture at large or even the government doesn't treat us favorably or, or doesn't view us well. That's just the way it's been. Following Jesus is and always has been a risky endeavor for anyone who's claiming this new life. Because we wait in this time between worlds. It's always been a risky kind of thing. And, and, and look, the reality is our country is no different from all of those countries in this world that are in opposition to the values of God's kingdom. We're getting way, way too caught up. There's one of the things I, you know, forgive me just for a minute, but I don't follow a donkey and I don't follow an elephant. I follow the lamb and I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. I'm not concerned with what these machinations are out here. We've got a purpose and sometimes it's going to put us at cross purposes to this broken world. In my thinking though, this is one of these things. So, so that's a, that's a reality that we face, but Joseph goes to Pilate and he gets permission from Pilate. That's one of those things I feel like we skip over way too quickly. In my thinking, this is surprising in all of the gospel accounts that Pilate allows Joseph to take the body, given everything that had happened between the religious leaders and Pilate prior to this request. This was just hours ago, remember? I mean, just like the day before. This, this was a problem. This was a fight happening here. Pilate had to be irritated by being visited again by a Sanhedrin representative who wants to bring up this Jesus character again and remind him of the potential black eye politically he might get from this whole thing. I just find it fascinating. In all of the gospel accounts, Pilate gives in to this request. He didn't have to. I mean, this wasn't like Joseph wasn't there as a representative of the Sanhedrin, you know, to, to, to he's not got the backing of them. So there's nothing politically at at stake for him in this. Certainly Rome had no interest in showing dignity to someone they had just crucified. And that's an amazing thing to me. It sort of speaks to me as a counterbalance to the previous point that I was making, that while this new life that comes through Jesus is at odds with the systems of this world, we also discover here that this new life will be surprising and unexpected. Things happen, and things happen sometimes favorably in ways that we can't even understand. Everything about Jesus' ministry was surprising. The way he demonstrated God's kingdom coming to earth, it was very different from what anybody expected it to be like or how it was going to happen. This entire narrative has been one surprise after another as Jesus has has revealed what God's kingdom is like. And, And it's the nature of this new life that's found in In God's kingdom, it's a life full of unexpected adventures. That's that's one of the big analogies that I use to describe this Christian life. Not just I, but everybody uses it, that it's a journey. We're on this journey. You know, I used to think 
of our Christian faith as something, you've heard me say this before, but as something that was established a long time ago and it was handed down to me for me to protect. Like, you know, it was my job to make sure that we defended the right doctrines and all of these things. And and I saw Christianity more like a, a castle. And I was supposed to man the walls and take shots at anything that looks like it was going to threaten the truths that I was standing on. But I've since had my thinking completely revolutionized. I've come to understand this life of faith, this, this adventurous journey that we're on. It's an expedition. We're looking for paths that, yeah, were trod before us a long time ago, of course, but also discovering whole new meadows and landscapes as the light changes and we break into new areas. This life of following Jesus is full of surprises. At least it has been for me. It's honestly, you know, been one adventure after another. Now, granted, adventures never feel like adventures when we're in the middle of them. A lot of times there's pain associated with that and discomfort and and hardship. But I can look back on my years of following Jesus and see how many times I was led through surprising circumstances and found unexpected discoveries along the way. Uh, Truths about myself, about this world I live in, about this God that I serve and, and follow after. Honestly, Eastgate is the result of such an adventure. And I think it would do us all a lot of good to see our Christian life that way, not in this defensive posture on a static wall of truth, but as explorers in the process of discovery of this, this God that who's called us into life uh, with him. This is a living truth we've been given, something alive which makes it surprising along the way because, well, that's just the way a living God is. All right, well, the story continues. Verse 55. As the body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun, so they rested as required by the law. Okay, so the way the burials worked in those days, you know, we have our patterns and processes, you know, we usually, you know, it's a casket and we lower somebody in the ground, usually on a burial like that. The way it worked in those days is that they would carve a, a like an opening or a cave out of limestone, since that was easy enough to work with. Uh, and, and they would make a covering, usually out of stone, that would go in front of the opening in that cave. And they would lay the body on shelves. They'd have multiple shelves carved into these caves. They'd lay the body on there, and then they'd cover it up with a stone to keep animals out uh, and things like that, or robbers. And then they would let the body decompose, and then they'd later go in, and they'd gather up all the bones, and they'd put those bones in a little stone box called an ossuary. And archaeology has found tons of those. I mean, we've got, we got tons of evidence of that, of that practice being in place. The detail that it was a new tomb is important because it meant that there were no other bodies decaying in there. This wasn't a case where they, dis, you know, they mistook uh, Jesus uh, for somebody else, some other body in there. He was the only one placed in there. So racing against the sunset, uh, Joseph and presumably some helpers removes Jesus's body from the cross. They cover him in a linen sheet and they put him in this newly dug grave. Luke also tells us that some unnamed women from Galilee were there. Uh, the fact, the detail that they're from Galilee indicates to us that they are more than likely his followers that came with him from Galilee down there. The other gospels actually give them names. Uh, and they're watching uh, 
where they put Jesus and they went home to prepare the spices that they were going to put on his body. They would do that to mitigate the odors that would be there as, uh, during the process of decomposition. He's careful to point out that they're waiting until the Sabbath is over, though, to do this work. They got, you know, time got away from them. So they're good, observant Jewish women. And I think it's interesting, they have no expectation of finding anything except a corpse on Sunday morning. And in some ways, you can almost feel Luke's excitement as he's putting this down. Just like, oh man, wait till you get to the next page. So it's kind of cool. But here they stand on the margins of this gruesome and tragic scene. They're watching the one that they had followed all of these years die on a cross and get buried and put away from sight. All of their hopes, all of their dreams, everything that they were longing for and expecting God to do was buried and put away and seemingly left unanswered. And Luke seems to want us to catch that they weren't just incidental reporters of something that they had heard about from somebody else. He wants to point out they were there. They saw him die. They they saw him removed from the cross. They saw him buried. And of course, they're going to see something else later. And and I want to look at that because this is interesting. And this is something that I, I think is intentional. It remains consistent through all of the gospel accounts. And that's the fact that it's the female disciples who observe and report what they see, both in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. Remember that. The very first ones given the, the commission to go and share what it is that God has done, to, to preach the good news, were, were the women disciples. Jesus has been planted like a kernel of wheat in the ground. And here we get another indication then of what this new life could be like that comes from this sacrifice that Jesus made. This new life from Christ, I believe, is one of unprecedented equality. And the reason I say this is that in the ancient world, and I don't mean just ancient Israel, but I mean in the ancient world at all, uh, in the Roman world as well, women did not have a place of equality among men. I mean, it's somewhat better in, in our world. I, I believe it is better, but there's an ongoing awareness of inequality and a growing interest in addressing and changing that known reality, whether it's gender, gender or racial bias or, you know, whatever. We, we know that there are still areas that are problematic within our society that need to be addressed. But in the ancient world, that wasn't a problem at all in their thinking. That's just the way life is. That's the way things work. In the first century, the hierarchical, 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 the, the order of things uh, in, in the Roman world were first you had wealthy, noble, male Roman citizens. After them, you know, you, you had the working class men who were Roman citizens. After them, you had men who were were maybe not Roman citizens, but they were men. <laughs> after them, you had the slaves who belonged to Roman citizens. And after them, you had male children who belonged to male Roman citizens. And after that, there's everybody else. So in other words, everybody else is insignificant in, in, in the, the social cast of things. So you catch the pattern, right? Women could be Roman citizens, but they couldn't vote. They couldn't ever hold office. They were also considered the property of first their fathers and then later their husband. And if they didn't have a husband, they were required by law 
to nominate a male family member who would act in their interests and do whatever needed to be done. Cicero famously said women needed male guardians because of infirmitas consuli. They were of weak judgment, (laughs) of such weak judgment. A woman's testimony was never considered admissible or legally binding in any sort of court uh, environment. It was usually, and this is the truth, it was usually rebuked as worthless, as, you know, just air. And things were not very different in Israel. I mean, women, women were not allowed to study the Torah. Uh, they didn't have nearly the kind of rights that men enjoyed. A woman could never divorce her husband, though a husband could divorce his wife anytime he, he felt like it. Uh, her testimony, a woman's testimony, was never admissible with any sort of judgment or court-type procedure. That's the backdrop. See, I'm saying all this, not to get you feeling like... I'm saying all that because that's the backdrop you have to have behind these women who are standing there watching Jesus be buried who are poised, set into position for the next event that's about to take place. It's not the male disciples taking note of the graves, preparing for Jesus' burial. As I said, all four Gospels report the same thing. Women were the first witnesses. This can't be anything but intentional. This, This is all backwards, according to the ancient world. It's one of those details that, to me make it hard to believe that this story was fabricated because why would you go out of your way to make this story as unbelievable as possible, to to make it more questionable uh, in that time and place? But I also believe it's forecasting what it's going to be like on earth when it is as it is in heaven. God will use his followers equally. In the writings of the Old Testament prophet Joel, there was an intriguing picture presented of what it's going to be like when God's reign comes to earth. And look at what it says in Joel 2.28. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's the... That's the uh, that is the uh, passage that, that Paul or that Peter pointed to in Acts chapter two when he's explaining what these amazing events are that are taking place. He points to this and said, "Yeah, this is a fulfillment of this. This is what's happening here. Christ's death and resurrection signal the beginning of this new world, a redeemed and a restored order. And God's picture of that world is one where all people are equal." a level plane where God equips and uses all of us regardless of our race or our gender or our economic condition or any other factor that this broken world uses to either esteem or marginalize people. God's kingdom, as it breaks out in new life in this world, is one of equality. And that is radical and amazing stuff. That is stuff that even after 2,000 years we still puzzle through and have difficulty wrapping our minds and specifically our, our orthopraxy around. We have a great deal of difficulty struggling with something that is so counterintuitive to this world's way of doing things. But this is what God is doing. This isn't what this broken world is doing. So as we've seen here, Jesus' burial, to me, 
is more than just a, a transitional pause between the cross and the empty tomb. I believe this is a picture of the seed of God's kingdom planted in the ground so that it could bring about a harvest of new life, a life that enjoys equality and, and unity with others, a life that is often at odds with this broken world, but a life that's full of surprises and ways through that we never would have expected before. It's a life that is full and purposeful for everyone. So let's embrace that life that he's growing in us. Let's recognize the wonder and the glory of this, what's been provided to us through his sacrifice on our behalf. Let's find our identity in that life, not in anything that's described to us or prescribed for us by this broken system, but let's find our identities and what it is that God intended for us, what life can be like in in the glory of his purposes. And then let's show this world around us. Let's show as witnesses this world what that life can be like. Let's represent the goodness of that, the glory of that, the adventure of that to those that we do life among. Right on? All right, very cool. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. How, I don't know. I never get over this, Lord. I just love how we can look at your word and I can read your word for all of these years and come back and find more and find more and find more. It's a living word. I believe that. I believe that. And I I just pray, Father, that you by your spirit will shape us, shape our attitudes, shape our thoughts, shape our behavior to conform with your intention for this life, that we can represent what it's like to live a life reconciled with the one who created us. What hope that provides, what peace, what grace. So I pray that that's true for each of us. I pray that you, you work that into our hearts and minds. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Honor you, Lord God, as our King. You are our Savior. You've described yourself as friend. But you are our King. Help us to commit our hearts to you, to follow you. You alone provide us with the words of eternal life. So help us to commit our hearts to you fully and completely. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's uh, speak this blessing on each other before we leave here. If you need prayer for anything, feel free to come on up. We'd love to pray with you, see what God will do. Um, And uh, other than that, uh, we'll bail out of here. So let's pray. pray, Let's pray. No. Let's speak this blessing on each other. I ran out of words just there. So may Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you, Christ be over you, Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.